Welcome to The Lamp Post in the Woods, the podcast that shines a light on the significance of the greatest stories ever told. From fairy tales to literary classics to the parables of Jesus, these stories have influenced the lives of countless people and still do. Here at The Lamp Post in the Woods, we journey through the great books, dramas, poems, and stories to find what they have to say for our lives today. I'm your host, Dinah Koppel. And joining me in this fellowship are Benjamin Koppel, Jennifer Malik, and Evan Zenobia. Then Adonijah, the son of Hagith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. 1 Kings 1, 5 through 8. Welcome to season one, episode nine, Daddy Issues. The passage that you just heard recounts the biblical story of King David and his relationship with one of his many sons. So today we're going to be discussing the role of fathers and how they're portrayed in literature. And to start off our discussion today, we are going to be discussing the novel Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner, which recounts the story of the Sutpins, a southern family, and how their dynasty fell into decadence after the Civil War. So for all your Bible scholars out there, that title of the novel is a quote from 2 Samuel 18.33, and it's referencing the story of David and his son Absalom. So while the book Absalom, Absalom is definitely not a retelling of the biblical story, there's definitely some echoes that are found in the novel, and the Bible story definitely informs the text. Now, you guys, this book has a lot to say about fathers and their relationship with their children. So fellow podcast members, let's start unpacking. So you guys, how does this book portray fathers and what does it say about fathers and the role of fathers? Um, where do we start? That's a little bit hard here because the book Absalom, Absalom doesn't actually really start at the beginning as it were. Uh, and it's not really told in any sort of chronological order that we can, we can understand. You, you kind of have to read the whole book and read all the pieces and then sort of put it back together in your mind, which I'm sure is what uh, Faulkner was trying to do when he wrote the book in the first place. Everybody in the book is an unreliable narrator. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of interesting because the main, there's a lot of characters, but the main character is Thomas Sutpen, who is a guy who in the beginning, all we know is that he came into this Southern town, um, this County, and he bought some land. He dug out some land and he starts building this house. And the whole book is told by people talking about him, but we never hear about him. And it's everybody telling their opinion of this guy and of his relationships with everybody in his life. So he, he gets married um, and he has two kids. He has a son or I think the daughter's older. He has a daughter and a son. Um, and he kind of has this whole beautiful little life put together. All right. Until we start finding out that some things are happening in this guy's life that uh, are not are not so clean or so nice. And of course, it's a spoiler alert to everybody. So if you haven't read it, go ahead and check it out. <laughs> but what we find out about Thomas Sutton, and again, a lot of this stuff we find out from hearsay from other people who are talking about it. Okay, right. so it, it's really hard to get that 
it's family drama. And maybe that's the, again, the point of what Faulkner's doing here. He's trying to show that family drama is, is, is really hard to, to break apart and to really find out who said what, who did what. But essentially we find out that Thomas Sutpin grew up very poor and he had an experience that caused him to, to basically decide that he was going to change his stars and change his place in life. So he goes, he leaves the, the South, he goes off to, um, it's either Jamaica or Haiti. It's one of the it's it's one of the one of the islands in the Caribbean, where he essentially gets a plantation. He wins a plantation with slaves, and he gets married. Um, and he finds out that his wife is an eighth African, well, not African American, but she'd be Jamaican, but she's an eighth black. And he's not really happy about that. That's putting it nicely. So that's putting it mildly. Remember, we're talking about <laughs> William Faulkner in the in the South, so. This is a time, this is pre-Civil War. This is pre-emancipation. Um, and so essentially he leaves his wife. Now, he, in his mind, he takes care of her, but he leaves his wife and he leaves his son and he goes to the South and starts over again, okay? So right off the bat, we've got some family issues and we've got some daddy issues right here with Thomas right. Sutpen. Uh, the woman that he married, I guess you could make an argument that nobody told him, blah, blah, whatever. But honestly, I mean, it shouldn't have mattered, right? Right. Um, but he leaves his wife and he leaves his son because they're not good enough for him. Now, right. We could stop right there and just talk right. about, you know, the effect of fathers just right on that, that yeah. spot. But, but here's, here's the thing that really comes back to bite Thomas Sutton is that his son, whose name is Charles Bond grows up and eventually comes and finds his father, but doesn't tell and actually finds his finds his stepbrother and his stepsister, but doesn't tell them who he is, and begins to work himself into the family. And he gets becomes good friends with the brother, and eventually he even sort of again it's hard to to know he becomes sort of engaged to the daughter who is his half sister. Yeah. And the only reason he's doing it is to get back at his father and get his father's attention. Yeah. But through the whole story, his father refuses to give him any attention. He refuses to acknowledge him as his son. And eventually, um, when the brother finds out, he shoot, ends up shooting his half-brother to stop him from marrying his half-sister and runs off. So yeah. what is the, so again, we've got a whole nother... It, it, we can say daddy issues here. We could have called it like nuclear daddy issues or something like that. How to not be a... <laughs> How to not be a father 101 as yeah, just, just, just Thomas Sutpin. At least if you could be better than Thomas Sutpin, you would not be the worst father in the world, you know, because it's just horrid right. stuff. But what does Thomas Sutpin do? Well, he decides he's going to start over. Yeah. And he finds another girl who is his wife's sister. So he's dead. His wife dies. So he goes to her sister and tries to start a family with her. She refuses him. So he mm -hmm. goes and he gets the granddaughter of a guy who works on his property and tries to start a family with her. Yeah. And that doesn't end up very, very well either. And um, he gets his throat cut. So again, spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good story. <laughs> but, but, and then, so, so that's, that's the story of this main character. But then we have all these side issues about all these people that he's gone through life just throwing people to the side and just yeah. pushing people to the side. And we're led to believe he has some honor. He, he keeps his word. Um, he tries to take care of his debts. He tries to be an upstanding citizen, but he's he's got like this grand vision of what he wants and what he wants to be. And it doesn't matter who gets in the way or messes it up. It doesn't matter if it's kids, his family, what? He's willing to cast them aside and, and to get what he wants. 
Right. And so there's some, there's some, Faulkner had some influence here from the story Absalom, Absalom in the Bible. And we could, we could go through and try to connect different characters to different, different characters in the Bible story. But that's, I mean, that's probably not what Faulkner intended for it to be a straight allegory or a straight one-to-one ratio because it doesn't sure. end the same. But we can look at the story of David. And we read that scripture in the Bible about how David read about Adonijah. But it says David had not rebuked his son at any time by saying to him, why have you done so? And we get this idea that this hero in the Bible, King David, the one who slew the giant, he becomes a king. He's a great warrior. He has no time for his sons. And he never fathers his sons. It's, it's kind of like Sutpin. He has these wives and he has these children because it makes him look good as a king. But he's not interested in fathering them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so this we, we've got we've got an influence here, and it helps us inform on the story here. So now I've been talking a lot of I'm talking the most here for a second. So somebody jumped in, and let's let's break this down here. We're, we're talking about daddy issues today. There are some obvious ones here, but let's let's if if we can let's break some of these issues out, and then we can start to see you know let we talk about what the role of a father is is supposed to be, and how Sutpin does or does not match that role uh, which i think i know what's going to fly on i but. think the first <laughs> thing that i like what i really take away from both of those stories is how the father himself doesn't value fatherhood um and again i don't know if we know a ton about the back we don't get a ton of background on the fathers of these fathers right mm-hmm. um but it almost makes it seem like oh you know they were they were uninvolved they didn't have any a good relationship. So there's no reason that I should value fatherhood myself because it's not, it's not beneficial to me to, to put value on it because I'm just going to maybe disappoint my children. Like my father disappointed me. Um, and I think that's prevalent throughout. And it's, it's crazy how you can, again, both characters, it feels like, it feels like David. Um, it feels like uh, Thomas, it's like they considered themselves to be honorable, but honorable didn't include fatherhood it didn't include being honorable yeah. as a father how does that which happen? Is a, i don't i don't understand the how that i don't know it seems like a just like a moral failing like something's just not clicking in your head maybe psychologically um well it seems like Suppin wanted he wanted sons to kind of carry on his dynasty right like he he leaves the one situation like you talked about at first benjamin and then he goes and kind of resets up a life and it talks about he comes to this this town in uh, mississippi i guess it is and he has like two pistols and like the clothes on his back basically and it's literally it's like your classic rags to riches store and he builds up he builds a like literally builds with his hands builds a home and gets money and then marries one of like the the ladies in in the town and so it's like he wants those kids to carry that on but he doesn't care about the kids himself because towards the end of the book uh, you kind of alluded to it, Benjamin, but he carries on this affair. He's an older guy and he carries on this affair with this like teenage girl and she gets pregnant and she has the baby and he kind of looks at it. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, oh, I wish you. And he tells, he tells the girl something like, oh, I wish you were a horse. Cause then at least I could put you in the stable or he tells her something yeah. extremely dismissive. And it's like, and, and here's, that could just, if I could jump real quick, here's uh, a, I think the reason why is because it's, 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 uh, it's insinuated that she has a daughter and yeah. not a son. And he exactly. That's son. what I was getting to. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And so it's like, this would have been his chance to start over. You know, I guess if you will, he has this daughter and this, this girl that he could have kind of protected, but no, she's not a son. And so it's like the only reason he wanted kids was to carry on that dynasty or to carry on his name or whatever. And that's kind of the sad thing that happens at the end is that 
oh my goodness, so much stuff happens in this book. It's like, you can't even summarize it all. But essentially, there's like a fire at, you know, um, one of the his other daughters that he has by a slave woman burns down his house with like him with her. And, and so she dies and one of his other sons dies in it. So all of his heirs, like anyone who would have been a part of his family is dead. And so there's no one to carry on his name. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's why he wanted kids was just, it was, it's like this selfish thing with wanting to carry on, carry on your name and not about the children themselves and not about taking care of the children. Uh, just like, I mean, why can't I think of what the kids' names are right now? I'm having a blank. Well, well there's Henry is Henry, his, is that's his right. son. Yeah. Henry, Henry Sutpin. He's the one who kills Charles Bond. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's because it wasn't about the kids themselves. Yeah. Like, and that's, sorry, go ahead, Jen gonna say he's so focused on building his own own empire that he destroys all relationships in his life right like he'll do mm -hmm. so because of that it it doesn't really matter and like you said like he's just here to produce an heir that will hopefully pass down the name and the saddest part of the story is that not only is his plantation destroyed which he tried to build but then he has no sons that are even able to carry his name down and that's yeah. like the best part of the story you know and I think he's, oh, go ahead. Well, if you have, I was going to do a slight detour, but say, say what you're going to say. All I was going to say is that he says towards the end of the novel, all I, all I wanted was a son. And it's like, bruh, you had like multiple sons, but you just mm -hmm. were a bad dad to all of them and had like a horrible relationship with all of them. So sorry, you kind of messed up that chance. Yeah, and I think we ought to, we ought to at least, fair enough, you know, we ought to at least include the context here that he's a white man living in the South. And it seems somehow he, he keeps getting tied up and having these Ill, children. He sees it Ill, Ill, as illegitimate because they're, they're black. And again, at the, in the South at that time, that wouldn't have looked good for him. But I don't, I don't think we can let him off for that because right. he, he, and I, it talks about how he, in his mind thinks like he's like when he leaves the first wife, and I think it's Haiti, he leaves his first wife. He says, he, it, it says something like he, uh, he paid his debts. He left her all the money. He left her everything. And he said, but I'm just not going to marry you and be your husband or whatever. So, so it, it shouldn't matter what, obviously today, it shouldn't matter what color of skin the, the wife was or, or, or what the kids were. But if we want to give him at least a, a modicum of, for, of respect for, for the context of the situation he was born in, it wouldn't have looked good for him. But then we can also say, because he also has an element, illegitimate daughter, Clydie. Yeah. Who's again, another child. So it's not like he's, he's a saint. He's, 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 he's sleeping around on his wife as it is. Yeah. You know? Um, and so related to that, I think we, we've, we've talked several times, like about he, all he wanted was to have kids to carry on a legacy, which I don't think is a bad desire to have. Like, that's it. Like, I think, I think that's a desire that many people have. And that is a good thing to have children leave a legacy, you know, leave the, leave something behind when, you, when you're gone. But what's the responsibility that a father has to his legacy? It's like, he wants a legacy, but he wants no, Thomas something wants no responsibility for his legacy. Mm, and that's, that seems to be something that, you know, not to get too, too deep on it, but a lot of fathers today, it seems like want the legacy or want whatever they get out of it, but there's a lack of responsibility. Sometimes they don't want responsibility for taking care of the legacy. It seems it, like a habit of maybe some highly successful people too. Like if you look at people yeah, that were yeah. like Titans of industry or pop culture icons, like they often 
I, it's almost like they compartmentalize fatherhood as a kind of like, it's just a responsibility. Um, I remember in, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Fences, right? But it's Denzel Washington that gives this really amazing monologue where the son's like, you never love me. And he was like, he's like, love you. He was like, I don't have to love you. I have paid for everything. I've fed you. I've clothed you. I give you a new place to sleep. Like love has nothing to do with it. Like I've raised you and I'm taking care of you. And like my job's done kind of. Mm. And it feels like with people that are again, like people that are highly motivated, you talk about people um, in the early 18, 1900s that founded these like industrial, these incredible businesses, they would often pass them down to their sons and they would fall apart because yes, they had a son for the legacy, but they weren't, that son wasn't driven or wasn't motivated because that father never passed along anything valuable to those children. Um, And I think we see that in the, in industry today where it's like handing this stuff off just doesn't, it just doesn't work always, you right. know? Well, it's interesting because you even see that with like biblical fathers. I think about some of the greats in the Old Testament. I mean, we're talking about David here, but think about um, like Jacob showing favoritism to his kids or think about uh, Eli, the great priest Eli or the prophet Samuel, all these all these men that are great men of God and great prophets and, and so skilled in what they do, but somehow they weren't either they weren't able or there was something lost in translation when it came to passing stuff along to their kids. Well, this is something that I was realizing and just comparing the story between Absalom, well, in David and then also in Sutton is that they were both war heroes. They both fought, you know, in battles. Good point. Though, you know, they were better at fighting battles at a war front than they were fighting battles in their own home. Because obviously at both their homes, there was a lot of bad things going on, but they wouldn't face it. And it was almost like the battle just escaped from all of it. And I think, Evan, to your point, that's kind of the same in today with fatherhood, that the career can become something that comes first before the family. Like, okay, let me just work hard. Let me pursue success, all these different things so that I don't have to face what's going on in my own home. Yeah. Yeah, and you guys, you guys bring a good point. Evan brings up a good point about, you know, successful men. It, it does seem like there's a blind spot there. And, and I mean, you can look throughout history and see this, but I think even today, it's like, like I'm happy that, that everybody can have a career and more and more people can go to college and be successful and change the world. But there's like this idea that if you change the world or invent something incredible or do some great political thing, like that's more important than you leaving behind like children that are that are good people and are adapted to the world and that are ready to face the world mm-hmm. like somehow that's that's given like a lesser like yeah. a like a lesser priority than doing these other things and i i don't th- i personally don't think that 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 a career or anything you do is more important than you know raising good children you know right. even look at david look at all the stuff david did and he's a hero of the bible and we've talked about him but he, he had one son and he was his favorite and he left some good stuff behind for Solomon, but all of the rest of his sons essentially gave him hell. And almost one of them, two of them almost stole his, his kingdom. Yeah. And all, and, and, and the entire nation had to suffer because of what David did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we, we can look at other fathers. We could look at, you know, unfortunately it seems like in the Bible, there's not a lot of good examples of good fathers. You know, you could start at the top. You could start with Abraham and go all the way down. You know, he 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 also has a son that, he, you know, we could brought Abraham in on the on the Sutpen 
the Sutpin uh, connection there because Abraham yeah. had a, a different wife and he had a son who wasn't the right son. And so he, he basically, because of, because of his wife, true, but he kicked him out and told him to leave, you know, and later his sons, you know, the, the, there was some, there was some strife there. Same with Isaac with, you know, with Esau and, and Jacob, he had a favorite in Esau. Jacob definitely had a favorite and it did not yeah. work out well for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's just, Maybe maybe the reason why the Bible has so many negative examples is because it wants to focus on our the greatest father, which is our which is our father in heaven. Right, the um, father and have, the fatherless. Right, and have the contrast there between between God our Father, um, who is the greatest father we could ever have. I don't know what you think about that, but no, that's good. And and I think part of this too, it makes me think about that quote you mentioned, Evan, about, you know, the son just telling the father, well, you didn't love me. And then the dad mentioning all these other things that he gave to the son. And I don't think that there's like a general consensus over what really is the role of a father, you know, and that Mm -hmm. there isn't just one definition of that. And a lot of people think different things. And especially if that doesn't line up, whether it's, you know, you as a child think that the role of a father should be a different way. And then your father thinks the role of the father should be different. I mean, my goodness, there could be total a bunch of issues with that one because, you know, the dad might think that he's giving the kid everything that the kid needs, but in actuality, you know, they're they're not. So I don't want to like get ahead of myself, but it feels like get ahead, get ahead. When you you talk about like Old Testament law, um, it was set up in such a rudimentary way, like here, here it's black and white. And like, if you're going to have children, you need to care for your children. If you're going to have a wife, you need to be able to support her. If you're going to have more than one wife, you have to be able to support them. And it was kind of just like an exchange. Like I'm going to have a wife and in exchange, like I'm going to take care of her. I'm going to feed her. I'm going to take care of those kids. And it was like, you lived by the letter of the law. And I think it persisted throughout Jewish history and old Testament history. And so it's such a, it's such an incredible thing when we get to and talk about the new Testament and, and the new covenant and how it's founded on love. Um, and I really think that it was a turning point or it was meant to be a turning point for people that were, were fathers, especially to like Jewish men who were meant to be the head of their household. Like it wasn't just about making sure that your kids were taken care of and that they grew up and were successful or had jobs or just were, you know, decent citizens, but it became more so about like nurturing your children and, and, and caring for your family in such a way that they weren't just, again, it's just kind of like, you know, just people expecting like, Oh, I'm leaving money for my kids. They're going to be okay. When in reality, they have nothing else set up to succeed. Um, and so again, I feel like I'm jumping real far ahead on this, but it just feels like, it feels like there's such a, a dichotomy, like, like for, it feels like for thousands of years, people were set up to just be like, Having a family is kind of just an exchange of goods, an exchange of services. I get a family, I take care of them, and we go forward. You know, kind of like it was a a business to just populate the world and survive, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, that was true. Your kids were the ones who helped you work the land or the farm or whatever the case may be, you know? Yeah, and and, and fair enough to to fathers like that and, and, and to Denzel Washington and Fences, (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of kids who don't even have what Denzel gave whoever his kid was that happens in the movie yeah. but there are a lot of kids who don't have a father who gave them money and gave them clothes and gave them food and gave them a home and they just had a mother doing it or they had nobody giving it to them so right so fair enough but and and that's clearly part of the role of 
of a father is to take care of and protect and provide for his children. Mm-hmm. But I think there has to be something, there's something deeper in what the role of a father is in the role of a child in, in, in psych. And I, I don't, I'm not a psychologist, but on, on a psychological or a, or a developmental level, there's gotta be something more there on, on that, 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 that goes into the role of a father. Right. You know, what, what do we think that is? I think to your points too, I think one of the things that I would say a son and daughter wants from their father is respect and love and being able to allow their father to allow them to do what they want to do. I I think a lot of it is, you know, when you see trouble in the home, whether it was now or even back in King David's day, it's when there is neglect of attention, you know, and not to say like, oh, we need our our father's attention, but just being invested in their child and who they are. Um, And it kind of made me even think about, because I was doing some research on William Faulkner, like where, okay, he's got to have some experience on this in writing this book. And his own relationship with his father definitely fueled this book, especially so. Um, For example, so his grandfather, uh, for just some uh, backdrop, is that his grandfather had a railroad business and his father, Murray Faulkner, wasn't able to continue that on. And which is kind of very similar to what we see even in Absalom Absalom. Um, But then later on, even though Murray Faulkner, he becomes an alcoholic, he becomes a very terrible father to William. Um, the thing above everything else that bothers William Faulkner is that he never got his father's approval for his writing career. Uh, wow. He said it was wow. that. Else. So it what so kind of bringing this all um, to fruition is that it's not so much that you know his father wasn't able to continue the railroad business, but more than anything, it was that his father didn't believe in him. He didn't believe in his writing, and because of that, it fueled just this hatred if I can say, for his father. And you see that in a lot of his writing and you know this, this idea of father-son's relationships. So I think more than anything, what he wanted was his father to believe in him and to be proud of him. I think to look at him and say, I'm proud of you, you know, even if this isn't the path that I would have chosen for you, that I'm gonna support you. And I think more than anything, that's what a child wants. Mm-hmm. Good, it's good. What are maybe some other roles that we've we've skirted around a bunch of these issues, but what are maybe some other roles um, that a father should have? And maybe what are some example of people, whether it's in Absalom, Absalom and other works of fiction that kind of uh, exemplify this? I'll tell you one that I was kind of thinking of, and it made me think of it when uh, Benjamin or Evan, I can't remember which one of you was kind of discussing, um, you know, take, you know, part of the father's role is to protect the child and take care of the child and provide for the child. And uh, it made me think of, believe it or not, Mr. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. And it's just interesting how you see these people. um, And you could say that even Sutpin provided for his children monetarily and gave them like the the comforts of a home and all that type of stuff. Um, But then you see someone like Mr. Bennett. And it's interesting because I think most readers of that book have a very good view of Mr. Bennett. And he you know, he's very amicable and he, him and Lizzie are, Elizabeth have like a close relationship and they love each other. But, and Mrs. Bennett is the one who's seen as kind of the silly, more the, if there is an antagonistic parent, kind of seen as the antagonistic parent. But when I was rereading Pride and Prejudice the last time, I got kind of a real kind of different view of it. And I see Mr. Bennett as doing one of those things or being one of those dads who doesn't take care of his children and doesn't protect their children. 
the basically whole crux about Pride and Prejudice is the fact that Mr. Bennett has five daughters and they're all unmarried and his estate is entailed on a cousin. So all these daughters, once he dies, they're not going to have money. They're not going to have a way of being provided for unless they go find someone to marry, unless they find a rich husband, which is why Mrs. Bennett, I know we think of her as being silly, but that's why she's, that's one reason I think why she's so bent on getting her daughters married because there wasn't an option for them to just go off and have a job or whatever this really was their only way of survival and part of the novel uh, actually goes into the fact that mr bennett because he knew his estate was going to be entailed talks about how he should he knew he should have probably put aside more money for his daughters and for his wife but he kept thinking oh i'm gonna have a son i'm gonna have a son so he didn't save money and he didn't make the proper choices about the things that he should have made until finally when by the time he realized okay, I'm not going to have any sons at this point, it was far too late to save. So really, if Mr. Bennett would have saved money and would have done a little bit more work, he would have been able to better provide for his daughters. Because really, once he died, his daughters are going to be destitute, really, without him or without finding mm -hmm. some rich guy to marry, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think what's also interesting about Mr. Bennett is that, like you said, Dinah, he has a really great relationship with his daughters, mainly Lizzie. Like he's, right. it's her independence. That's one of the things that I think was probably revolutionary during that time that Mr. Bennett does celebrate his ind her independence. But I think it's almost, I was thinking about it. I think it's almost his reflection of him as a father that he still kind of lives in these independent mindsets that he never crossed over from really being um, an independent man to taking on the role of needing someone to depend on him. Because you even see like throughout the book, he kind of withdraws when he's needed most. And that's- So true that's when Mrs. Bennett steps in, you know? Um, so even though there might be good attributes, it's kind of like, he just doesn't step up to taking on that role as a father. Right. And even the I, biggest part, go ahead, Benjamin. I was gonna say, I think the interesting thing there is that, yeah, we're meant to like Mr. Bennett in that book and not Mrs. Bennett. But, but the thing is here that Mr. Bennett has abdicated his role essentially as the father, so which true. is what I think is one of the most important roles of the father is to, is to, not only provide for your children, but make sure your children can provide for themselves later and to yeah. start to start to start drawing them out of like the home sphere and, and try to help them mature and grow. And he's basically advocated that. So Mrs. Bennett steps in and she's now trying to provide for her daughter. Yep. She's the one trying to get them out of the house. It's yeah. not Mr. Bennett, which, which typically in, in, you know, just dads, it's the dads always like, well, when are you going to get a job? When are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? And the mom's like, well, don't, don't, no, no, don't, don't rush them. You know, he's just, just <laughs> yeah. a child. But, but, but Mr. Mr. Bennett hasn't done that at all. And now Mrs. Bennett is a, like, get out there, stop reading books, Lizzie, go fix your hair or whatever and get, look good so you can get a husband. I, I know it's, it's, it's encouched in these like archaic, you know, uh, 19th century, you know, uh, societal roles, but yeah. that's kind of what she's doing. She's pushing them out to go, to go find something and to go, to go enter the world of the adult, which is outside of the house, right. which I think that's, that's one of the primary roles of the father. One of the primary mm -hmm. roles of a father is to invite his children out of the home into the world of an adult and help them become adults, help them learn how to provide for themselves you know, the, the mother nurtures and helps grow as the child, you know, when a child is young, but as the child gets older, it, he now, and, and it, it's probably more so for a boy than for a girl, but I think it applies for both ways. The child begins to enter into the, the world of the father, if you will. Yeah. And I don't mean that any sort of, you know, uh, uh, sexist or chauvinistic way. It's just, that's in, as, as far as in the, in the, the archetypes there, especially in history, the mother 
the mother's realm was the home and the father's realm was outside of the home. Right. And the father's supposed to invite his children out of the realm of the mother or the home and out into the world. And mm -hmm. Mr. Bennett doesn't do that at all. Mm -hmm. Sutpin doesn't do that at all. Uh, he, mm -hmm. he does a little bit. He pays for his son to go to college, but he really does nothing. David really doesn't do any of that in his children except for Solomon. Yeah. The rest of these sons, like, like it's almost kind of heartbreaking that part in the Bible where Absalom, he's just trying to get his dad's attention. Yeah. So he has to go burn somebody's field. Right. And then, and then that guy comes and says, why do you do that? He said, because I want to talk to my father and I'll go tell him I want to talk to him because his father won't let him come before him. That's tragic. It's tragic. And that's, and, and in a much smaller way, you know, where people are burning fields, that's kind of the issue I think we have with a lot of fathers today. You know, right. e even like the Denzel Washington father here, he's like, I, I provide for you. What more do you want? Well, you also had this responsibility to help your son grow and become what he was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And he kind of didn't true. do that. Yeah. Right. It seems like there's a major problem anytime we outsource parenthood, outsource. Oh, Ev, whoa, right? wait just a second. Outsourcing parenthood. <laughs> wow, Evan, that's like a, that's the name of a book or name of a, yeah. you know, a parenting. Book. Yeah, I mean it right now. <laughs> <laughs> whoa that, that is like that's... that is tweetable right there folks right that. <laughs> uh, it just I, I don't know it feels like it it feels like it's persistent and i don't know if it's so you talk about pride and prejudice i don't know if that's a product necessarily too of maybe the time period because i i try and think like okay that was probably a time period where many of the children that were born to those parents maybe didn't survive or a portion of those didn't survive. And so I think historically, I think it built callousness in the father to be like, I can't get attached to these children because I may lose them before they turn three. And I think that, <laughs> Oh, uh, that's so sad. <laughs> I know, but what I, but you, you see what I'm You're saying? Not like, wrong. I, think it, I think it was, we, we know, we know that as, uh, as, civilization grows as we settle you know food isn't something we're fighting for every day like we can begin to progress and grow as a civilization because we're not worried about the next meal or we're not worried about and so i almost wonder if that was kind of like a it's kind of like a survival mechanism like i've you know you think about these people that are in the you know exploring and and, and inhabiting the americas as a new country and these children are dying off and they're like, well, I can't get attached to these children because we've had four or five children and none of them have survived the winter, you know? And so it almost makes you think that like, historically speaking, like maybe, maybe Mr. Bennett came from a time where it was like, well, some of these kids may not survive. So why get attached to them? And then before he knows it, they're of marrying age and he has no real connection to them. Um, I think it's being it, way too nice to him, but. I you know. Have, no, I agree. Point I, it's made. still point bad. No. <laughs> we have well, to then, take it in context. And another thing with Mr. Bennett, too, is that uh, one of the things we haven't even talked about and probably his biggest role or lack of role in the book is towards the end of the book where Lydia wants to go to Brighton. She wants to go off, like, away from her family and go with one of her friends and go to, like, a camp full of soldiers. And Elizabeth and Jane keep telling their dad, Dad, this is a really bad idea. This is going to, she, do not let her go. Something bad is going to happen from it. And he basically says, oh, well, 
your sister's not going to be satisfied until she goes off and exposes herself and embarrasses herself and this will be you know an easy way for us to do it because these people want to take her and we're not going to have to like pay the expense of it and he kind of just blows it off and does not yep. and lets her go do something because lydia is a very strong will she's a very strong willed daughter and he doesn't tell her no all he cares about is like his peace and quiet and making sure that she just gets out of the house like that's really what he wants she's annoying and he wants her out of the house he knows his wife will not leave him alone until he lets her go i think his exact quote is we'll have no peace until he either says like we'll have no peace unless lydia goes to brighton and that's all he cares about is having like peace in his home which and fair enough because lydia is obnoxious oh she's horrible so fair enough but still exactly well because the the argument could be made that he let her get to being the age that she is 15 16 without kind of like david never telling the never telling the kids what to do and basically letting the mom raise them right it's probably his fault that that she is that way right because again, favoritism, we, we've talked about how we've kind of skirted around the issues about how a lot of these fathers mm-hmm. had favoritism. And Mr. Bennett is pretty un- unashamedly, like Lizzie is his favorite. He likes Jane too, but Lizzie is 100% his favorite. And the rest of them he can't care about. He kind of makes fun of them in public. Yeah, That's also a, not a great thing to do as, yeah. as a dad is to make fun of your children and like embarrass them in front of other people. Yeah. I think what's interesting about this too, because I... Like with William Faulkner, I also wanted to see what Jane Austen's relationship with her, was with her father. I know I'm the historical nerd here. Yeah. So. Jen's our historic, our historicist. <laughs> <laughs> we'll always know the background here, which is good. Which is That's good. Some facts, and I'm like, someone absolutely, out- somebody needs to look it up because the rest of us didn't. <laughs> Someone's gonna enjoy this and be like, ah. Uh, but Jane Austen had a really, really good relationship with her father. What's interesting though is that her father died pretty young, so he died in 1805. Jane Austen published Pride and Prejudice in 1813. So this forced her to become, in a way, independent. So she was forced to become independent because so now she knew the absence of a father in her life. So I think she kind of explores that because even if you see throughout her books, there's always kind of that absence of a father, but especially right after her father dies, it's amplified in her books. And I think because she began to know that physically, the absence of a father. So she explores it emotionally in her books, which I think is really cool that she kind of, she takes that on. Um, and, you know, he was the one who encouraged her in her literary education, unlike William Faulkner's dad. Hmm. Because of that, she was able to withstand a lot of different things and be an amazing writer during this time when there weren't a lot of female authors. But because of her father's influence in her life, she was able to continue on and then explore these things through fiction, which was probably very healing and therapeutic for her. Yeah. So, oh. Go, Jane. That's, good. that's interesting. And that's you bring up an interesting point, Jen, about how this the lack of the father is kind of what had to make Jane Austen be independent and kind of because I'm even thinking through about some of her other books and there is there's not too many good strong father figures i mean there might be some good fathers you could argue that mr woodhouse and emma is a, is a good father but not super strong and it makes the you know the heroines in the book have to be independent and i was kind of looking up some stuff in preparation for our episode about how fathers are portrayed in fairy tales and i was reading an, an article and was making an interesting point because we've talked in our like in our cinderella episode about how even in the the original stories that the father was in the story he's not really in the story because he's like subservient to the evil mom or the stepmother he doesn't really do much and the point the article was making is because it looked at like cinderella i think sleeping beauty and snow white and talked about the lack of the father or like either the father not being in the book in the story or the fact that the father had such a minor role and didn't really do anything kind of yeah we being weak so weak being extremely weak actually gave these 
these um heroines in the in the book actually or in the stories actually gave them agency and actually is what allowed them or kind of pushed them into kind of having their own story and into kind of finding their happy ending so it's interesting because i think that's when there is an absent father of course we'd say that the, the best is to have a, a positive father who does all these great things that we've been kind of talking about but in an instance where there is not that father there or, or a father is very weak and doesn't really do anything i think this is the best case scenario where it gives the children agency and they're able to go on and do things and they're able to take that lack in their life and growing through it and we unfortunately don't always don't always see that but i think that's kind of like the best case scenario of it are there good portrayals of fathers in fairy tales? Because I couldn't think of anything off the top of my head right away. I couldn't either. But it's not like I have this idea of, oh yeah, this is a great father. The only one maybe would be like um, in Beauty and the Beast, Belle's dad in Beauty and the Beast or the pr yeah. whoever, Belle's in the Disney version. But I mean, the pr like the princess beauty, you know, in, in the Beauty and the Beast, I guess her dad could be considered good. Um, but even in some versions of the story, I think he like lets her be sacrificed to kind of save himself so yeah right. i don't know if there are fairy tales great story great examples of fathers in fairy tales now that i'm thinking through i i got nothing it's an interesting thing to think about too right like why are there no good positive portrayals of fathers in fairy tales and in our, in our earliest stories and then even as we mentioned before in the bible a lot of the fathers are not always the greatest so it's just like interesting that we don't have a lot of positive stories in our earliest stories right i mean if you look at mythology and fairy tales and of course we believe that that what happens in the bible aren't just stories this actually stuff that happened but if you look at fairy tales and even mythology and all that i guess for the very like you know basic reason of it does move the story along to long to not have like a dad or not have like a positive father figure in the stories it does cause the hero you know i say that in air quotes whoever the main character is it does kind of get them out of the nest and does get them to be out in the world and have an adventure or have some type of growth experience. But um, I don't know, like even, yeah. Well, I, I, I think, so, so this is, I mean, you mentioned mythology and those mm -hmm. ancient stories. This is something we want to talk about too, is how have fathers been per portrayed in literature? And I think you go back to those mythological stories, they're very archetypal. And so many times that father is, seems very often the father is an enemy of the hero mm -hmm. and it's and it's like it's like the hero fighting against the tyrannical father which could be anything from from like society dictatorship to an actual father but it's always it, it, it's 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 so often it's that the father is like a very the father is a very harsh hard figure and he's something that the hero has to overcome in order to get to the next step right I guess you could, I guess you, and, and you could make the argument that that is a, a role that a father fulfills just, just in, in anybody's life. Maybe not as we, we don't want to think of it as like an antagonistic or a mean role, but it is kind of something like you have to impress your dad. Right. At least if you're a boy until he's going to let you use his power tools, or you've got to prove this to him. You've got to prove that, you know, in order before he lets you drive his car, things like that. And that can be a negative thing if the father doesn't have the kid's best interest at heart. But if the father has the, the kid's best interest at heart, that can be a positive thing because, sure. because once you once you meet that goal, then it's kind of like we talked about with mentors, the threshold guardian. A father can kind of fulfill that a little bit. Yeah. However, when we look in mythology, it seems like most of the time the father is it's that negative, that negative element of fatherhood that the hero has to 
like fight or overcome. Even if we want to look at two, we have faces, which we read, Mm, which I think Lewis gets that pretty good. The father is very harsh and domineering and he's grudgingly respectful if you prove yourself to him, but you have to prove yourself to him. True. Mm -hmm. And so the father has something to overcome and to fight is through all throughout literature and story. Um, Yeah. That's good. That's good. I think Evan had something fun to say about that. (laughs) What? We always rely on poor Evan. We always rely on him for the jokes and to say something. I don't know. It's not a joke. But is that a feed? Were you feeding something? I was going to say something else. Say whatever you're going to say. I was going (laughs) to say. I think generally we look at we we understand that we grow through adversity. We grow under pressure. Um, I think the the big thing that we see, obviously biblically, is that. you know, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Right. And so be, he gives us enough adversity. We, he knows we can handle it. He knows we can overcome it. And so we grow because of it. So I think because we are imperfect and because fathers are imperfect, they cannot regulate the adversity that they hand off to their children at times. And so they may think I'm giving them a good dose of adversity when it's too much for a child to handle. And I think at times it squashes like their, um, a kid's ego, it ruins their self-worth. And so I think it's like, they, they think, oh, like you should have enough, like rub some dirt in it. You have enough to overcome this. When in reality, that child, you've given that child too much, um, to handle and it, it, it crushes them under the weight. And so that's why it's a really interesting deal to be like, well, is that love (laughs) is giving adversity love? Is it, is it cruel? Fine line. It, it is. is. It really is a fine line because it's necessary. I mean, as a father, mm-hmm. I think you have to you have to give adversity to your children in some regards so that they grow and are shaped into someone who can handle the world around them. Because if you don't, then they're going to be like you know trapped in a bubble or incapable of having a conversation or interacting socially or you know what I mean. Like they miss out on key characteristics. Right. Well, I think how it's done too, right? So if it's done in a loving manner, if it's done in a way where it's even explained maybe to the child where there's conversation about why you're letting, allowing this to happen. I mean, think of in the Bible too, how the, it talks about how the Lord disciplines his children out of right. And in the same way, a good father does that disciplines, allows for a certain adversity to happen. But sometimes it's not done out of a place of love. And I think that's the key thing is what is the motive? behind this what is the father's motive right mm-hmm. I have to ask right. even looking at those stories and as a father you know what is your motive behind what you're encouraging your child in right because I think part of the role of a father is and we've all kind of mentioned it but is to make you a better is is to make you better to help you do or encourage you whether it's kind of forcing you to get out of the nest or but to make you do the things that you're capable of doing, you know, Mm -hmm. to help you grow and become better. And I know we've mentioned maybe some negative uh, images of fathers, but one positive that one of them I'm going to mention, and it's not strictly a book, but you guys, I want to talk about Mufasa and Lion King, the classic Disney movie that came out in the nineties. And I think there's a lot of archetypal stuff there about the Lion King. So I think it kind of, I think it kind of fits with what we're talking about. But think about Mufasa who I think he does a lot of these good traits that we're talking about. I think he does that in some of, some of probably one of the, some of the more positive ways. If you think back to it, he sets boundaries for Simba. He tells him, you know, you can go anywhere. Our kingdom is anywhere the light touches, but you can't go 
to that dark place over there. He says, it's dangerous. You can't go there. So he tells Simba what he's not supposed to do. He sets the boundaries for him. Simba goes there and has to learn a lesson about how, you know, and almost gets eaten by hyenas, but his dad's there to save him. And he has a good learning experience with him, talks about how he's, he's like, I'm disappointed in you, but I love you. And it just, you can see how much it affects Simba because he wants to, he absolutely, he thinks his dad just like, you know, hung the moon and he wants to, he wants to please his dad and he looks, he looks up to his dad. And I think that kind of Mufasa's role is to get Simba to be the I want to say person he's supposed to be but to be the king you know be the lion king that he's supposed to be like towards that that end of it where um Mufasa appears to Simba like in a in a vision or in the star in the scar in the stars and uh he tells him you are more than what you've become and he has to tell Simba like you need to stop you need to stop staying where you are I need to go back I need to become king you need to man up I say man up in air quotes because he's a lion but you need to go and do what you're <laughs> supposed to do <laughs> you know exactly he is honestly they make you get attached to them like 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 they're like people but um i think it's just a good positive example of how a father is supposed to get you to do the things that you're supposed to that you're supposed to do yeah simba's definitely a person because lions as soon as simba became of age his father would have ran him off or tried to kill him so he's definitely they're definitely people well Well, his dad was dead yeah so he he had to die he had to die Is this a circle of life? Scar just did what you know Mufasa did to the in the in the pride before he got there. Hey, do not lessen this. Do not lessen the sadness of Mufasa's death. Do not lessen that sadness. It's a it's a it's a beautiful. It really is a beautiful story because even after Mufasa's dead, who who is it that pushes Simba back out and gets him to to stand up and do what he's supposed to do? It's the spirit of his dead father. Mm-hmm. It's that spirit of responsibility and that's and you know that that. That, that's supposed to push you out and make you go do great things that your father's supposed to do, even when they're gone, it's still that spirit, that idea that pr- pushes Simba back out to go do what he's, fulfill his destiny and do what he's supposed to do. It was his mentor, Rafiki. Yeah, but you need the mentor to, to get him back to that place. Yeah. And also this shows that his legacy lives on. So Mufasa's legacy lives on because of the type of father that he was. So that- he lives in you. <laughs> he lives in you. <laughs> Yeah, not like Thomas Sutpin. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, we don't want Thomas Sutpin to live on in anyone. But Mufasa, it's fine if Mufasa lives on. I'm sorry, Jen, I interrupted you with the quote. <laughs> go ahead. I, I don't remember what I was going to say, but basically his... I'm his sorry. Way to go. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> his legacy lives on. And then, you know, Simba is able to do what his father would have set out to do. And I know, I think it was maybe in the last episode where Ben had even mentioned about Sometimes it's someone's death that ends up allowing, like with a mentor, right? Like someone stepping into that position, propelling them. And that kind of does that with Simba. And in the same way, he does have a mentor in his life who's able to kind of guide him and be like, you know, rather than being stricken by grief and, and this is not what your father would have wanted. Your father would have wanted you to step up and, you know, be a man, like step up and and take the role of of the line that you, you meant to be. So I think you know, like we wouldn't have, we needed Mufasa's death in order to truly see Simba become who he is. I think what we're seeing here is that Jen, Dinah only wants you to talk when you have historical things to say. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Hey, Jen does, she does know all the historical things. Don't bogart the mic, Dinah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll just mute myself and put myself in timeout. Yeah. Whatever you want, it's muted. (laughs) 
there's a there's a, a a role here that that I keep coming back to, guys, and and it's something that everybody needs in their life. And the word I keep thinking of is invitation. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs an invitation to come out into an invitation to an adventure, an invitation to come out into the world of the adult, an invitation to go do something great. You know, maybe, maybe there's some people who don't need any of that and they're just wonderful, perfect, and they can they just know everything they're supposed to do. But it seems that everybody else needs some sort of invitation, you know, and that and that is usually the role of the father. Like, like think about we talk about Mufasa. Think about Mufasa. He takes Simba out, and he does he just like most actual lions, he doesn't just have a bunch of kids and then lay around and do nothing. He takes Simba out and he shows him this is going to be your kingdom. Okay, this is going to be the place that you're going to rule. Okay, he teaches Simba how to hunt. He takes time to explain to Simba when he's done something wrong that he needs to do better. All of that is an invitation for Simba. Look, you're not there yet, but I'm inviting you. At some point, you're going to enter this realm here, and I'm, I'm starting to provide that invitation for you. That's something I feel every person needs. I mean, if I just talk about my, my own father just for a second, I know every, t- every day I went to school, um, my dad would tell me, you know, I'm not raising you to be like everybody else. I'm raising you to rule the world. So make sure you have self-control, control your actions, because people who control their actions will rule the world. And that may, and it wasn't just me, it was the rest of my siblings. And, and that may seem like something, something small, but that, that's an invitation. That's an invitation right here by a father who's already out there in the world to say, look, you can do this too. I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to come and I'm even going to give you a little bit of a push to help you get there. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody needs that. And it doesn't have to be a quote unquote, an actual father. It doesn't have to be a biological father, which if we can take anything home, any takeaway from this message is that anybody can fulfill that role for somebody else, especially mm-hmm. any men who are listening to it. You can fulfill that role for other young people, especially young boys. Yep. And the, the example I'll give is, is Treasure Island, um, the famous pirate novel. Um, Jim Hawkins is like 12 or 13. And the, and the story says his, his father dies in the very beginning. And we don't get much about his father. He seems very weak-willed. There's not a, lot, uh, not a lot of influence that the father has on Jim Hawkins. So Jim goes out here and he's ready to start. And he has skills. He has abilities. But there's no, there's no way for him to apply it. And, and he, he has to have somebody who will allow him to use his skills. And he actually has this whole gamut of, of men who respect him, even though he's 12 or 13. You can talk, there, there's the doctor who's the first one. He believes Jim's story. And he, and he actually sees that there's something important in the kid. So he goes and he, and he helps finance the expedition. We have Captain Smollett, who also, even though he's a little bit harsher, he kind of treats Jim like a man. When they get to the island, he treats him as a member of the, of the crew and as one of their, basically one of their soldiers. Even Long John Silver, who's the bad guy, he's the, he's the pirate, who, he's a murderous pirate. He wants to get the gold. Even he recognizes something in Jim and, and basically takes every opportunity he can to encourage Jim to help him grow, to show him stuff about the ship and to tell him that even, even though sometimes he's, he's, he's trying to manipulate him from his own ends, in the end, even Long John Silver as the bad guy has this sort of role in Jim's life of inviting him to, to, to enter this role, you know, this role of the adult or this world of the father. And none of those men are his, are his actual father, but they fulfill that role in his life. And I think that may be the most important thing that a father does other than protecting and providing is mm-hmm. to their children, inviting them saying, look, come out here. 
and sometimes it's a push it's get out there and look for yeah. a job or do whatever mm-hmm. and it's 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 this invitation to come and actually become an adult and become a, a member of society and start becoming what you can be like that belief thing that jen was talking about with jane austen and with william faulkner's dad as well absolutely so so faulkner didn't have he must hopefully he had somebody somewhere but but his father didn't believe in his talent and honestly it's really sad because you read into a lot of these authors and it's like they didn't they didn't have that relationship with their father and it's like their entire rest of their life they're trying to prove themselves to their dead father but they never can and that it it breaks my heart because it happens in other people too but you know, we talked about Jane Austen. She did have a father who respected her talent and encouraged her there. And that was her invitation. It's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. good. Okay, I also want to speak about a father that is not a biological father um, that made a really great difference. And so no historical facts, but Dinah, it's a- <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Yeah, Dinah, leave her alone. We Man, I, I, am, I am feeling personally attacked in this episode. <laughs> Go ahead, Jen. <laughs> historical fiction uh, fellow reader. So <laughs> I, my, one of my all time favorite books is the book thief. So if you've never read it, I'm just going to say to our listeners right now, you need to read it. It is tremendous. And if you like the screw tape letters, it has kind of a similar vibe because the narrator is death, but it's told. Wow, through- Jen. Yes. Spoilers. That, so- that sounds like an Evan book. <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, World War II and the narrator is dead. And so you actually find out about people's deaths before it happens, which is really interesting. So, um, but one of the main, the main characters is Liesel. And she, during World War II, gets sent to live with this family, the Hubermans. And one of the father, the father of the home, Hans Huberman, basically sets in this role of raising her. And Isn't she- that the bad guy from Death, from, from uh, Die Hard? Hans Huberman? <laughs> Yeah. Is it the what? same name? Or Hans Gruber. Gruber. Oh, Hans oh, sorry, Gruber. Sorry. Different okay, Hans. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hey, Jen. in Frozen, the villain's name is also Hans. I'm just saying. Go ahead. That's like Jen. a typical German name, so it's always a bad guy's name. But sorry, Jen, go ahead. <laughs> so his soul suffers from nightmares, which rightfully so. She's torn away from her family. And spoiler alert, this happens in the first few pages. Her brother dies on the train. So Aww and she arrives at her adoptive parents without her brother, which is very tragic. But she suffers from these nightmares and we wake up in the middle of the night and what does Hans do? He sits with her and he reads to her all through the night until she falls asleep. And then she would wake up in the middle of the night, say like two or 3 a.m. And then she would wake him up and he wouldn't complain. He would read to her until she fell asleep. And I think to me, it's just a beautiful portrayal of fatherhood in this instance of this girl, especially in the beginning, he has no relationship with her throughout the book. You see their relationship grow, but it all comes from this place of him just showing up and making sure above everything else that she feels safe. And I think especially in a time one where war is going on, where she lost her family, her brother, everything that she's known, she's living with people who aren't her parents. I mean, that in and of itself is a very scary thing. And he does everything that he does to make sure that she feels safe. And I just think it's so endearing. And then she grows up to become who she is because of him. And she probably wouldn't have been as, as strong of a character if he hadn't just showed up for her in those moments. So anyways, read the book. <laughs> I need to read that one again. 
That reminds me of the first episode when Evan was talking about that his dad was the one who kind of like read to him when he was a kid and got him into, gave him that love for, for reading. So good. I yeah. love it. Yeah, 100%. Evan probably wouldn't be on this podcast if his dad hadn't read to him all those years. There you go. Aw, Evan, you need to call yep. your dad and tell him how much you appreciate all that he's done. And listen, I my dad my dad t- calls me probably two or three times a week, and he's like, "Really? Hey, when when are you guys when are you guys having guests on? When do I get to be on the podcast?" Aww. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, he was influential. We may have to do it. Exactly. It was. And I mean, he's one of those guys too. I kid you not. He, he, if you want to know like Cimmerillion or something like that, he's got all that information just like tucked away. Like he just, well, then we'll have to have him on because he's a, he's a bit of a, a, a Tolkien and Lewis fanatic, just like us. So That's um, awesome. <laughs> yeah, he passed Evan, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Influence of Tolkien. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, our dad is great, but we're not going to have him on this podcast because he reads like he reads like Clive Cussler thrillers and <laughs> and books about Israel. And that's it. Yeah. No, but on this theme of like um, fathers who, uh, you know, people who, you know, who weren't an actual biological father, but kind of stepped into that role. It makes me think of Matthew Cuthbert in the Anna Green Gables books. You know, Anna's this, you know, this little orphan who gets adopted, I think, when she's like. 10, 11 or so. And it's just interesting. I think Matthew Cuthbert is a good example of how fatherhood or having someone to take care of can completely transform the person. Because here he is, and he's kind of described as this painfully shy person. He never speaks to anyone. He's a little bit, I don't want to say recluse, but he's just very, very shy and maybe a little bit of like a socially awkward person. And they go and they adopt this this kid to cut him and his sister to help him on their farm. They think they're going to get a boy and they end up getting, there's a, you know, a mistake and they end up getting Anne, uh, Anne Shirley. And he just absolutely adores Anne. And this little girl who just like talks a mile a minute, just manages to bring Matthew out of his shell. And she just completely like uh, gets Matthew wrapped around her little finger. And this person who was so shy and couldn't talk to anyone really kind of almost like blossoms as a person because he had someone to care about and someone to, take care of and someone to kind of mentor and um spoil it there's a there's a real cute scene in the book about how he he really wants to get Anne this this dress and he goes into a store and can't get around to ask since so he buys like the entire store basically and before he has the nerve to ask about getting Anne this dress and so it's just really really sweet it doesn't have to be a biological father and there's people out there listening it's like if you don't if you feel like you don't have that role in fulfilling your life go find somebody and 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 let them be accountable to them and let them be your father, you know? Um, and if you're and if you're out there and you're an older male or, you know, go find somebody that you can, you can help fulfill that role in. Cause we need that invitation. We kind of talked about this at our, on our, I think it was our, um, our small actions, our small actions, big consequences episode, but it makes me think of Joseph in yeah. the new Testament, the stepfather, I guess, if you will, of Jesus and how, just influential he was in the life of Jesus. And if you even look at the very early history, you know, before Jesus is even born, you know, Joseph, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, okay, you need to marry this woman, the child that is, you know, that is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so he marries Mary. They go to Bethlehem where Jesus is born. And then Joseph has another dream where an angel appears to him and said, hey, you and the, the family is not, the kid is not safe. You need to take him to Egypt. And so Joseph just packs up and just moves to Egypt 
drops his entire life on hold, his work, his job, everything. And they live there for a couple years until another dream and it's safe for them to come back. So you have someone who's not an actual father, yeah. but who fulfilled really fulfilled that role probably i mean i don't know if you can even think of any better examples i wish we had that story you know i wish we had more of the interaction between jesus and joseph because i just feel like that would have been i I just that would have been wonderful i feel like obviously if it wasn't the bible there's i'm sure there's a reason but i always wish we had that story legitimately if we were like drafting like biblical fathers i think joseph is a first round pick it seems like he's literally one of the best representations mm-hmm. of a yeah. father which is such a cool thing um, and the thing is jesus jesus is not actually joseph's offspring right he puts all that into someone who's not even his offspring yeah you know technically and 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 he knows that when when the end comes he's not going to be the one to say hey look hey jesus that's joseph's boy you know they're going to talk about how his father was god he's going to be relegated to the side but he fulfills that whatever that role of a father we're led to believe he fulfills that role of a good father, even though it's not even his his mm-hmm. his biological son. Sorry, I didn't mean to run over you, Evan. But no, no, that was all I was gonna say. I just I think it's really, I think it's impressive because it's nice that we have a we have those those instances in scripture yeah. to look at and be like, wow, yeah. he was a sterling example of of what a father should be, and that's just really going. Like you yeah. said. I'm sure it'd be cool to have more of it, more of that story, but you know, there's some stuff that's just not meant for us, I guess, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Any I other, mean, go ahead, Benjamin. I feel like we can't, we can't leave this, this podcast talking about fathers and not talk about like the most famous father son relationship in everything except for Jesus and his father, which is star Wars. <laughs> Very true. Fair enough. There is, there is all kinds of stuff going on in, in star Wars in the father son and the father children um, relationships there and i think it brings in all the stuff we're talking about I'm, I'm talking i was talking about this this invitation that somebody has to have in order to join this realm of the father and we start with kind of the central character here anakin skywalker who basically was born without a father which you know on a side note that may be the worst plot point in all the star wars movies together that's, that's <laughs> dumb it's really stupid so I tend to think of it as he had a father that he just never knew and his mother never, whatever. Anyways, he has no father growing up. Okay. He's a, he, he's a small boy. He finally gets somebody. When Qui-Gon Jinn finds him, he see, he recognizes the potential in this kid and Qui-Gon invites him into this adventure and invites him into this larger world. But then he's killed. He's killed before he can really have any, have any influence on Anakin. And then Anakin is trained by Obi-Wan Kenobi who does it only through a promise to Qui-Gon, basically. And he never develops his fatherly role in Anakin's life. Eventually, he becomes like a really close brother to him, but he never has his fatherly role. And the only people who could really fulfill that in Anakin's life are people like the Yoda and Mace Windu, these guys in the council, who, if you notice, they never accept Anakin for who he is. Mm. They never respect his abilities. They never recognize him or honor him for what he's done they're all they're only this harsh demanding father on him and he has he has nobody even though he's this extraordinary person he has nobody who is inviting him into this larger world it's like the council conspires together to lock him out of their of their realm Mm -hmm. which is the realm of the father in this case so who's the only person in the story who recognizes anakin's abilities who respects him for who he is and who gives him all kinds of responsibility. 
Palpatine. The only person is the bad guy, Palpatine. So we could relate this in here is that if if somebody doesn't have a father, we crave this sort of fatherly attention so bad that we'll even go follow follow a father who's evil and wicked. Right. Oh, preach. And preach so right and there. so Palpatine fig- gets it out perfectly. Okay. He gets he gets Obi Wan out of the way at some point, and he and he we have this idea. Yes, he's manipulating Anakin, but we know Anakin knows that. But yet he still wants to follow him and help him because he's the one who finally is recognizing his talents, who's actually helping him grow, who yeah. who's actually wants to give him, invite him out into this world and be this person he knows he wants to be, even though he's wicked. So yes, Palpatine is evil, but Anakin is, is sucked in by that. Then we see what happens to Anakin and he, and he goes down this dark tunnel and becomes this sort of this evil person. Now, contrast that with Luke. Luke grows up with a father who's not his biological father, but it's his uncle Owen, who who seems kind of rough. But we know number one, he he he's instilled in Luke the importance of hard work, of being honest, of being honorable, of keeping your promises. And so Luke has that father figure. And then the first the he meets Obi Wan Kenobi. What's the first thing Obi Wan does? He says he invites Luke on this adventure and gives him that thing you've taken your first step into a larger world. Right. You know. He gets to Yoda. Yoda's a harsh man, but Yoda trains him, and Yoda Yoda does for Luke what he wouldn't do for Anakin. Even Han Solo, he's he's a rogue. He's a brother, but Han recognizes Luke's talents. There's that scene where he invites him on to, you know, come join me, come join us. We'll, we could use you, you know. Even Darth Vader. There's, yeah. There, there's <laughs> Talk a, about an invitation think about, scene. Think about yeah. Think about that famous scene with Vader reaching his hand out to Luke. Even though he's trying to get him to do something wrong, he recognizes his son's talents and he does for Luke what nobody would do for him except for the empire, the emperor. And so when we get to both Luke and Anakin are kind of faced with the same choice. But since Anakin had no father, nobody would, nobody would train. He had no other option. He goes dark. However, Luke has all these other mentors, these fathers in his life who have raised him to do what's right and he's able to resist. And I think that's a good dichotomy because you can look at in the world, young men, who are going wrong, who many times there's no father. So they, even, even young men, like in gangs and stuff like that, they, they find this group of people that will some, that will somehow give them kind of what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And again, it just comes back to, we've got to be that for somebody else. Sorry, monologue there, there, but that was good. I've been That'll saving that one right up there. guys. No, that that's, that's really good. I feel like I need to, I need to chew on that. I never quite saw star Wars in that, in that light right there. What else, you guys? Are there other examples, maybe, whether it's positive or negative, or of you know fathers in literature? I think we need to talk about Atticus Finch and To Kill mm. a Mockingbird, just because I believe he's probably one of the best portrayals, positively, of fathers. Right. Agreed. Probably talk more about negative than positive. And I reread To Kill a Mockingbird this weekend, which was the first time I read it since high school. So it's been oh, wow. well over a decade. And I just had forgotten how good of a father he is. And you forget, you forget how young Scout and Jem are. Mm-hmm. Scout is only, I think, seven or eight in the beginning when we when we're introduced to her. She might even yeah. be I think, I think she might even be six. Kindergarten, first grade. Yeah. yeah. And yet you almost forget they're not adults just in the way that he treats them. And it might be because also they are lacking a mother. And so we can that's a whole nother angle. But there was one thing that I realized as I was reading this book above everything else is that Jem and Scout trust their father. And I think trust is the number one foundation in a father-child relationship. 
And we can say that, you know, furthermore in our relationship with God, that if we don't have trust, then there really is no foundation for a relationship. And one of the quotes that really stood out to me in the book is this is Atticus speaking. And he says, I just hope that Jem and Scout come to me for their answers instead of listening to the town. I hope they trust me enough. So Atticus understood that if he could build trust in his children, his word would be stronger than any other voices in their lives. And it just makes me Good. think continually how important you know that is and that in that trust, because then when they have questions, which throughout the book, they have all these crazy questions and they trust their father and they trust their father's word above everything else, especially when he goes on to fight a case that the rest of the town is kind of against and they're able to trust in their father and not what the kids at school are saying or at church or wherever else right. they just they trust their father enough and I think that above everything else because if we don't have trust we'll listen to other voices rather than taking our right. father's word or you know God's word as our solid understanding so mm-hmm. I think in Atticus is so so very so very solid that's so good and I think part of the thing about Atticus too is that he's not only a great father he's just a great man And thinking about some of these dads that we've talked about, they might be good men or good people, but they're not great dads. But if you think about it, even the good dads we've talked about, Atticus, Joseph in the Bible in the New Testament, if someone is a, is a, um, is a great father, they're probably going to be a pretty good person. Good men might not necessarily always be great fathers, but it seems at least with the examples we've talked about is that great fathers are great men and Atticus not only is a great he's is he a great father but he gives his kids like this um this example to attain to I mean Scout talks about how brave he is and one one of the the quotes she says at the I don't know if it's towards the end of the book but she says it was times like these when I thought my father who hated guns and had never been to any wars was the bravest man who ever lived and they see their dad you know presenting or um representing this this black man in this this case this this um criminal case and you you pretty much know at the beginning at least almost kind of get the feel that Atticus even knows going into it that he's probably not going to win the case but he does it anyways because it's the right thing to do and he knows that and he knows that he has to try Mm -hmm. so I think that that's another mark of great fathers is you can give your children an example to to attain to and if we're looking at our example of god as the father to the fatherless the the ultimate father look at the example that he gave us right being here on earth as the man jesus christ we're supposed to try to as christians we're supposed to try to emulate jesus and um try to be as much like him as we can and he gave us such a great example to follow but just like it says in first or second peter that we we should follow in his steps or walk in his steps I think that's a great mark of a great father is giving us an example or like an ideal to attain to. Exactly. And I think another thing that we see in the story of To Kill a Mockingbird with Atticus Finch, one of my favorite lines too in the book, it's when Jem speaks and he's, this is right after Atticus shoots a stray dog and he does it in one shot. And one of the ladies in the town tells him, didn't you know that your father's nickname when he was a kid was one shot man or whatever, you know, he was, he was a one shot but he never told his children about that. And then Jem goes home to scout and he says, I wouldn't care if he couldn't do a blessed thing. Atticus is a gentleman. And I think through his life, Atticus has shown his children that it's not what you do for yourself that makes the greatest difference, but it's in how you treat others that makes the greatest Mm -hmm. difference. And that is what he does. And that's what he sets out to do is that he shows his children that you are meant to make sure the right thing is done and to serve others before yourself and and a lot that's what they 
they see in Atticus. And I think that is so, so profound. And, you know, whereas we see these other stories, especially in, in the book that we started off with, Sutton definitely does not think about anyone. Yep. But, <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Evan, you're not going to talk about Captain Hook? I know. That's I, a- think we, I think we need to hear. I think that would be a great ending for Evan to talk about Captain Hook. At least Hook. something. <laughs> I, I don't know. It felt like it felt like we moved past where that that fit, and so I didn't. We want did. To we got all serious and sweet, but still. But it's okay. Hey, we'll we'll get serious in our in our last word. So go ahead, give us a little bit of lightheartedness before we go more and back into the serious or serious right. commentary, if that's what you want. Yeah. All right. All right. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> with the figure of Captain Hook, and this comes from this comes from uh, a number of. Uh, stage performances as well as uh, the book uh, Peter and Wendy um, which is like an adaptation a continuation of the play of uh, of Peter Pan Um, what we see in the stage performances and even in the Disney portrayal that uh, Hook is portrayed often by the same actor figure that plays Wendy's father which naturally makes you think okay this is meant to represent a father figure whether it be in the physical realm or the Neverland realm. Um, and so I think throughout, Peter obviously has feelings for Wendy. Um, some really confusing, <laughs> if we want to be like goofy about it, he is because of some very confusing feelings about Wendy because he doesn't know if he wanted to like date her or if he wants her to be his mother um, half the time. Oh, I never thought about that. Uh, it's He like he legitimately throughout, he just kind of like wants to be baby yeah. by her, but he also like is somehow attracted to her and all this yeah um but so what it, what it does throughout is it naturally i think even even like subconsciously i think it makes you think okay peter pan is at odds with this father figure in hook um because it's represented by that same actor that same figure that's meant to represent wendy's uh father and even throughout like i was trying to think like hook captain hook isn't like your normal bad guy. I think a normal bad guy has a really specific plan or a really specific, like he's motivated by something. It doesn't feel to me like hook is really motivated by much other than to just like squash the lost boys fun. He yeah, doesn't really, he just wants well, to murder children. That's it. Well, and get back at Peter Pan, right? Because, well, is it yeah. just the Disney version where he cuts off his hand and throws it to the crocodile? No, but no I think that's we're all to- of them. But I think we're meant to believe that he's been fighting Peter Pan like forever. Yes. And Peter finally yeah. cuts his hand off, but he always wants, he's always wanted to kill him. But it's not something where he's like this super motivated There's no plan yet. There's villain no plan where yet. he's got like some evil plot. It's really just like, ah, uh, like I've got to catch Peter, got to catch the Lost Boys, got to take care of him. And so it really gives us, I think, that, that look at the like paternal squashing of the fun like you okay you have to you have to obey you have to stand up you have to be responsible it's time to take a stand for being a man and all this kind of stuff um and it represents in a really i think a really silly way it represents kind of what um we fight as we grow up as we transition from children into adults and it's letting that thing go and saying okay i'm gonna leave neverland and finally grow up um but that paternal like squashing of of goofiness and squashing of the fun you're having is like always resting over and i felt like that's what i'm saying i feel like we moved past that because it was something you talked about pretty early on ben um in in literature that theme 
Well, we could talk, um, that's something we can talk about forever because, you know, Peter Pan is the classic story. There's, a, there's like a syndrome named after it. He, he <laughs> won't grow up. He refuses to grow up. So maybe Hook represents what happens to the paternal instinct and specifically the father instinct when you don't grow up. The father becomes like tyrannical if you refuse to grow up. That, that aspect of you growing up and becoming a man it becomes like a tear. It's something that's trying to kill you and destroy you and destroy your youth because you have to grow up and you won't grow up. Right. Well, and I would even say if we take it a step further, right. So hook is pursued by this alligator that is, that is preceded by the, the ticking of a clock. Right. Yes. (laughs) And I really do think, I really do think it's, it's representative. It's almost a little tragic because I think it's, representing like a father figure that's like listen my time is ticking i need to i need you to give these things up before you before i die before you lose me and you don't grow up wow and there's nobody left to push you or chase you and so i think it's that's what i'm saying it seems to me like hook is yes he's a a villain but i think he's the most sympathetic of villains in a way because it's not really like he's out to do a whole lot other than to be like listen i you know you took my hand um fair enough (laughs) i just think there's some other stuff there um and again i i won't i won't belabor it but i think it's a really fun i think it's a fun look at fatherhood um and kind of plays both side of it to be like yeah, I don't want to grow up, but at some point we all have to choose to grow up and listen to that paternal figure and make the decisions to take a step out. Um, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, the father will become the enemy. I think Benjamin, yeah. you may have mentioned that yep. earlier. And that's even a quote in in Absalom, Absalom. It says, uh, the father is the natural enemy of the son. Yeah. I can't remember specifically who says it, but I think that's true. If you get to a certain point, the father is supposed to do, at least at the beginning, all these things we've talked about, nurture and protect, maybe push you out of the nest if needed, but love you, take care of you, all that stuff. But at some point, if you don't grow up, I think there will become like this, this enmity in this, this um, relationship that's a little bit adversarial. Yeah. And who mm-hmm. hasn't ever had, had an, an antagonistic, you know, situation with your father, right? You know, who was like, or, or a father figure who was like, what are you doing? get out and do this or you did that wrong you know and it's and as a father if hook is the father at some point your father just get frustrated if he doesn't think his son or daughter are are maturing as they should be and it's just like peter pan and hook are like this like super over the top example of that you know And, and fair enough to peter hook is like who peter can grow up into and like he's not somebody that peter may really want to grow up into so i i think there's an isolated aspect of hook as well where he has his own issues, but there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely something meant to be taken there. Like Evan said, because the father is almost always, the person who portrays Hook almost always portrays the, the Wendy's father as well. There's supposed to be a connection there. Mm-hmm. I think what was interesting, you know, that was brought up too, is this idea where because he won't grow up, that then how the father kind of becomes more tyrannical and all of that. And I am going to include one more historical fact. <laughs> That's oh, great. Yeah. I love it. Is <laughs> <laughs> because, so James Matthew Berry, who first wrote Peter Pan in the book, um, I think I wrote it down in, what's the name of the book? Anyways, he wrote the book. You can look it up, but it was in 1902. Uh, he wrote about the character Peter Pan, and then he went on to write the playwright in 1904 um, to expand on these characters. And what's interesting is that he had a brother 
David, who died in an ice skating incident right before his 14th birthday. And his parents referred to him as the boy who never grew up. And that is kind Aww. of this inspired this character for Peter Pan. I know it's really sad, but it made me think that maybe James witnessed kind of his father's transformation because of that, because his, son, you know, losing that son and, and refer, you know, how that changed him. I don't know. So it'd be interesting to know kind of what that relationship. Wow. Well, it seems like really he's over perfect, overprotective then too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To be like, you have to grow up. You can't have fun because this may happen to you as well. Exactly. And so that probably influenced James relationship with him. I don't know if he was younger or older. I'm not sure, but yeah. I'm sure I'm and yeah, which is really, really interesting. And another fun fact in that playwright, Captain Hook was added only as a theatrical device to distract the audience while stagehands changed the scenery. <laughs> what? And the rest is history because that was important. Seriously. Yeah. So talking about bringing back to small actions, big consequences. Mm -hmm. Love it. That so, is so, so awesome. So here's my question then. What does it mean that Peter kills Hook and doesn't grow up? What does that mean? You know, he kills that tyrannical aspect of the fatherhood and then still doesn't grow up. That it's, it, You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's, that's why Peter Pan has always been to me like a tragic story. Yeah. Because Peter does, like he, he doesn't grow. He doesn't change. And he's like stuck in this sort of thing. Wendy Lee goes home and grows up. It's, it's good for her, but Peter doesn't. And he's, he's almost like a tragic character. Because I mean, unless unless we're going to consider Hook, the movie Hook, as part of Peter Pan's storyline, he is finally, that canon? Yeah, are we considering finally, that as canon? Peter finally no. grows up and becomes a man, but yet still has his his you know his <laughs> his childlike, and he finally Peter Pan finally gets his ending in Hook. He doesn't really get an ending right in the book. Wow, that got that got way too deep for me right Rufio, there. Rufio, Rufio, yeah. <laughs> oh, hook! Oh my goodness! Well, this is really yeah, that, good. there's a bunch about father. There's a bunch about fatherhood in that movie. Oh yeah. my goodness! Yeah, seriously. Let's go watch that now. I know. Well, on that <laughs> note, I think we're gonna try to wrap this up. Yeah, and we better go to last some, words. Some some cohesion at the. The end so what i'm going to do um benjamin since you're the one who um started evan along that rabbit trail i think you need to be first to kind of bring us bring us back what are your last words for this episode about fathers i've been like lately i've been so affected by like father stories and like the fatherhood aspect of stories like um i just turned 30 i know i sound like i'm 18 um but i just turned 30 a couple months 30 a couple months ago and I'm not a father yet, but I would like to be, but it seems like that, that part of stories and stuff is just jumping out at me. I mean, I'm a, those of you who don't know, I'm a youth pastor. I work with young people a lot, all the time. And I've, I've worked at a, uh, I tutored at a learning center. I've worked in kind of education settings um, for a while as well. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking how many kids don't have an, a father in their life. You know, and some of them, they, may, they may have a biological father, but he's not fulfilling that role. And when I worked at, a, at the learning center, you, you could tell, I could tell almost immediately the kids who didn't have a, a like a male role in their life. Cause I worked in the office. There was, it was like 30 women and me and one other guy. And there was just this totally different reaction that they had to me and this other guy, no matter how we acted, because they just didn't have this role in their life. And 
it just seems that all kinds of books and stories I'm reading right now, that thing's like hitting me. You know, I watched Lion King again uh, about a year ago, maybe less. And I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And that scene where Simba goes and he sees his father in the sky and the spirit of his father comes and, and basically chastises him and pushes him out of that adolescent role in becoming an adult. That scene just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's never happened before, you know? And it, it, there was something just so something so special about it. And that also made it so like adventurous. It's like, look, there's adventure out there. There's great things out there for everyone to do. Everyone can be successful. Everyone can change the world, but we all need somebody to fulfill that bodily role and invite us out into that place. And so my last thing would just be, if you are it's, you know, it's just an older person for anybody, you know, if you're an adult, but especially if you are a male, find somebody that you can help fulfill that role in their life because you may change them forever and end up changing the world too. I love it. So good. Jen, what are your last words? Okay. So to kind of go along with that, if you're a father or you hope to be a father one day, I think it's super important to ask the question, what type of legacy am I leaving behind? And in these stories today, we've talked about good legacies that have been left behind and those that have not been so great. And I think that as a father is a question you ask yourself is what legacy am I passing on to my children for them to pass on to their children, right? We want it to be a continuous and it shouldn't just be a temporary legacy. It's something that can go beyond this life. And I think that's one of the greatest legacies that can be built. And for those of us who are Christians, we can pray and ask God to help us build a legacy that's long lasting, a faith that passes on to the next generation, right? I think out of anything, as a parent, as a father, that is one of the greatest things that you can pass on to your child, right? Is to continue in the faith, the truth, to pass that on to that child so that then they can keep that going. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts we can give is leaving behind a legacy that's not only long lasting in this life, but is an eternal legacy. So what are the things that maybe we can invest in our children that will be reap of an eternal reward? Mm, I love it. My goodness. I, I hate to even have to go after you, Benjamin and Jennifer, but uh, for me, as we were discussing this episode, and we, we've been mentioning even as we've been discussing kind of the role of, um, or kind of the, the imagery of God as our father in the Bible, and probably one of the most poignant uh, bits like that in the Bible, I say is found in Luke chapter 15, and that's the story of the lost son or the story of the prodigal son. And you have the story about this young man who um, doesn't treat his dad very well. He you know, goes off. He asks for all of his, all of the the inheritance that he was gonna, that he was gonna get, and he goes off and spends it all. The Bible says in riotous living, and he's down at the very, you know, bottom of the the lowest of the low, living in a pigsty, and thinks, you know, the servants at my father's house are treated better than what I'm treated, and so he decides to go home. And the scripture records that in the story that as he is on his way. He sees his house and his father is out there and he's looking for him. He's watching for him to come home and his father runs to him and he embraces him. And he's so glad that his son is home and he restores him. He puts like nice clothes on him, puts the signet ring on him and he has a big party for him. And he says, my son that was once lost is now home or my son that was once dead is now home. And I just love the fact that um, how God treats us this way and regardless of what we what, what what we've done no matter what it is we can still come back to God just like in a good relationship with a father no matter what it is no matter what it is that you've done you can always come home and always come back to your father and it's going to be a safe space for you I know that um 
growing up, you know, my dad would tell me and my brothers that we might not necessarily agree on anything. Sometimes you guys might do something that I don't approve of. Approve of. You might do something that I don't like, but he, he's told us, I always want, I want you guys to know that you can always come home. There's always a place for you at home and you can always come home. So if you're a father, I think that's a, a good way of a relationship to have with your children. You, you push them out of the nest if you need to, you invite them to the call to adventure, all these great things that we've talked about. But at the end of the day, the place where you raise them and that home needs to be a place for the children to always come back to because it's a safe, it's a safe place because your father is there who, who protects you. So that's my takeaway. And I will pass it along to Evan for our last, last words. <laughs> uh, I guess the only thing that I can say, especially thinking a lot about this is society. I know we didn't talk a ton about modern society. Um, I feel like it has demonized masculinity in a lot of ways. Um, and I think it's uh, the product of so many years of having fathers that let a generation down or let generations down. And so they've demonized max masculinity and say, we don't need this. We don't need this influence. Um, in reality, I think we, we absolutely need father figures. Um, and I think that it's what going to help to fuel the balance of, of morality, of people that are strong, of people that are um, distinct and determined. Um, and I think we need that balance. And, and so when, when mothers and fathers are involved, we're always set up for success, I think. Um, and so we need those influences. We need not push those ideas of masculinity away um, because they are, they have their benefits and they're beneficial to our, our civilization really. Um, and I guess the very last thing I would say regarding fathers is I, uh, have you guys seen the movie click with Adam Sandler? No, but I know what it is. <laughs> I kind of know what, I, know I, what happens. I don't cry for movies and I cried during click. Cause oh, he dies, and he dies, he dies in a, it's, it's just a part. I, I won't spoil it, but it's just a funny anecdote. You already spoiled it by saying that he died. He doesn't, but he doesn't die. Okay. He, he has this kind of like realization at the end of his life that he's like failed his son and he's like dying in the parking lot and like just trying to say everything that he can. And it's this yeah. comic movie. And it was literally one of like the most touching scenes yeah. I've ever seen. So if you need, just, you know, look it up on YouTube or whatever. Um, I cried during click. That's what I'll leave you with. Uh, it, I'm not, I'm not proud of it. <laughs> oh, oh goodness. All right. Well, thank you, Evan, for that. Great. Great ending. And thank you so much to our listeners for joining us today on our quest to find true meaning in our favorite stories. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to subscribe to The Lamp Post in the Woods and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Our intro and outro music is called Missing Peace, and that was composed and performed by Jacob Koppel. And Jen, why don't you tell us where we can, uh, where our listeners can connect with us on social media? All right, you can connect with us on Instagram at Lamppost in the Woods and maybe share with us what are your favorite fathers in literature. And lastly, as Dinah said, you can go ahead and rate us on Apple Podcasts and you can also leave us a review. So go ahead and do that because we would love to hear from you all. Awesome. Well, we hope everyone will join us for our next episode, which is actually the last episode of season one. What? I know I can't believe it, but more good stuff will be coming will be coming after that. But Benjamin, why don't you tell us what we're going to be discussing for our last episode of season one? 
The last episode is called The Power of an Experience, and we are going to be talking about the apostles in the book of Acts, specifically Paul, and how their experience changed their entire lives. But because this episode is going to come out in December, we're going to be focusing on one of our all-time favorite books, which is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. So you're going to enjoy that one, trust me. It's going to be Christmas, you guys. Woohoo! Wherever you find yourself on life's journey, we hope and pray that this lamppost in the woods will help guide you to a hopeful future. See you next time.